You're listening to Retro Sermons, timeless lessons from the Bible spoken by voices of the past. And now here's your Bible form host, Audrey Ballou. Thank you and good morning. Welcome to another section of Bible Forum. We want to encourage you this morning, as we do every time we come your way, to uh, be interested in your Bible, to consider these things that we know have been taught to us by God, and to, in every way that we're able to do so, seek to get closer unto him by following his way and by learning his truth. We come your way by courtesy of the Church of Christ here in Beckley, meeting behind the radio station, uh, WWNR, on Harper Road. We want to remind you of our services. They begin this morning with Bible study at 10 o'clock, continuing with our regular worship service at 1045, and then again this evening for worship at 7 o'clock. We're hoping that you might be interested enough in Bible truth, and especially in our plea to teach only the Bible and to practice only what the Bible teaches, to come out and be with us, to study and to learn, to teach us, and to together cooperate so that we might be able to be the kind of people that God would have us to be. We do have a midweek service at 7.30 on Wednesday nights, and you're invited then to come and be with us and to study and to help us to get closer unto what God would require. Those of you who listen to the program are aware that we are engaged in a Bible form. Uh, we simply mean by that that we are interested, first of all, in Bible matters. Uh, we are encouraging those who listen to share with us in the study of the Bible. It is a forum-type discussion, and that means that all of the audience has an opportunity uh, to come with us on the program, to uh, discuss with us these things that are from God, to raise whatever questions might be of concern to you and concern to others, and we provide the opportunity by means of the telephone. Uh, we are sitting here by the telephone, and we have two numbers that you might be able to call, 2538307 or 2538308. Uh, either one of these two numbers will reach us, and we're simply asking you to confine your questions and your comments and your criticisms to those things that pertain to the Word of God. Now, we uh, usually pursue a line of thought and have a particular study in mind. That does not mean that if you're interested in the Bible and are not interested in this particular subject but have another point that you'd like to make or a criticism you'd like to offer, uh, that you're unwelcome. We mean to invite everybody, and if you have a question that does not even pertain to the uh, topic we're discussing, uh, we want you to call it in to raise the question, to offer the comment, and to consider with us these things that we know are important because they have been indicated as such by God. But as I say, we are pursuing a particular line of study. Now, our phone number here is 253-8307, And you feel free to call as we go into our discussion and make whatever comments or offer whatever criticisms you might feel necessary in view of the things that you might hear on the program or things you've heard by others and things you want to study about the Word of God. Now, our study for the past uh, several times has been involved with the church, and we realize that our position on the church is controversial. We understand there are many who might disagree with it. Uh, we were hopeful as we started that there might be those even among the preaching element in this con uh, city who would be interested enough, since they do hold different views, to offer for public study and general consideration these things that they believe and uh, help us to uh, at least consider them and uh, to weigh their merit by the word of God. But of course, such has not been forthcoming as yet. But we have already made some very plain statements and some very striking statements with regard to the church. For example, we've learned from the Word of God that there's only one that God would accept. There's only one church in the Bible that is mentioned. Uh, this church is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church that was bought with his blood. It is the church that was emphasized and set forth in Scripture. It is the church that all men must be part of in order to be saved. It's the church we enter by obedience. We emphasize all these qualities and we've uh, insisted upon them because they are set forth in and f uh, found to be a part of the Word of God. 
Uh, we have also pointed out the fact that this church can be identified by a tracing of the seed that has been used to plant whatever organization we might be considering. The seed of the church is the word of God. Uh, told us so in Luke the thir- uh, 8th chapter and Matthew the 13th chapter where Christ gave us a parable that showed how the kingdom or the church came into existence and there he described it as uh, characterized by a sower going forth to sow seed. And when this seed is sown and it falls into the hearts of good and honest people who are willing to receive it exactly as it is, then the product of it will always be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pointed out that in order for us to be able to find the church in our time, we simply must identify the seed and then measure each organization that comes to life uh, by the seed that is set forth by the word of God. And we've been trying to point out according to this divine seed exactly what the church consists of with regard to various aspects of it. And at the present time, we were thinking about the time the church came into being. We've made the observation that if the church of which you remember started at a time different than the time that the New Testament church started, obviously it cannot be the New Testament church. Uh, the only church that can wear that distinction is the church that started when the New Testament church started. And we began at the, uh, uh, the earliest possible time we might be able to start a discussion like this by trying to find, with regard to the church, uh, the time that it actually began according to the word of God. And we were in process of doing that as our program ended last week. But now we have our first question this morning on Bible 4. Uh, Good how, morning. How do, you get, how do you get in that church, Brian? Uh, all right, let me, let me make the observation in regard to this first of all that uh, I, I will just assume until we have proven it on our program and hope that you will accept this, that when one is in Christ, one is in the church of Christ. Uh, when one is in the kingdom of Christ, one is in the church of Christ. And uh, if you want to discuss that, we will. But now this is the basis on which I'm going to answer your question. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 26, uh, the apostle Paul said, We are all the children of God uh, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now if I understand the statement that Paul makes, it is the condition on which one becomes part of Christ. One is baptized into Christ. Spiritually baptized. Uh, no, baptized into Christ. Uh, the baptism into Christ, according to Romans chapter 6, is a baptism into which we are put and from which we are raised. Uh, you remember Paul said, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. But like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in the of life. But he said it's by one spirit we're all baptized into the church. Uh, well, now, it is through the means of the Spirit, and I, I recognize you as going back to this First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. I simply call to your attention the fact that the baptism that puts us into Christ is a baptism that we leave. And if, we, if it's baptism in the Spirit that puts us into Christ, then we leave the Spirit because we leave the element that puts us into Christ, according to Romans 6 and uh, various other passages, you see. And I, this is one of the reasons why I would point out that it could not be Spirit baptism because one who's baptized in the Spirit doesn't leave that. You see. And so we make these observations. Uh, we might even go to Acts, the second chapter, where we find the, the people for the first time becoming part of the church. And here we're told that they were commanded to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ. And we know that wasn't spirit baptism because on the condition that they did that, the apostle promised they would receive the spirit. Uh, and then the last part of the chapter points out that uh, they were added to the church on their baptism. And the Lord added to the church those that were being saved. And so when people were being baptized in the water back in that time, uh, they were being added to the church. And that's another passage that we would offer for your thinking on that point. But you have two ways then getting in the church. No, sir. No, sir. If water puts you in. 
well, now we just uh, we we're, we're asking you to consider these passages. We'd like to have some comment on them because they certainly are uh, very uh, significant in in the question. Uh, there is another alternative you don't seem to want to consider, and that is that the baptism of First Corinthians twelve is a baptism which is administered by the Spirit, or at least directed by the Spirit, but it does not necessarily involve spirit baptism. It is the same baptism talked of in Acts 2.38, and Galatians 3, and Romans 6, and there's other passages. No, uh, uh, John mentioned the two kind of baptism. He, he mentioned the water baptism and the spiritual baptism, both and you've got them both to consider. Uh, well, I'm not trying to not consider them both. I'm just pointing out that uh, the only alternative to your statement that there are two baptisms that put you into Christ, that you have two ways, is to realize that the one baptism taught in Acts 2.38, Galatians 3, and Romans 6, and 1 Corinthians 12, is a baptism taught by the Spirit, and therefore could be in that sense said to be by the Spirit, but a baptism that water is the element of. You see, that's, that's, the, that's another choice that you won't offer us. Uh, John said he, he'll, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's right. And the ones that John made that statement to were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we can find in Acts the first chapter and Acts the tenth chapter how that the apostles applied John's promise. And I, I'm content to take what they said about it. Well, I, I'm kind of confused. Well, uh, as we point out, we've got we've got three choices in this question. You have the choice of saying that the Holy Spirit baptism puts you into the body, or saying that uh, there are two baptisms that put you into the body, or recognizing the fact that there could be water baptism directed by the Spirit that would meet the demands of every passage we've mentioned. And, and just incidentally, that's the only baptism that will meet the demands of Acts 2 and Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 12 together. And if you take those three passages and recognize them all being the same thing, then you'd have no problem. You think me and I can make it pretty clear that John did when he, uh, he said he used the water, but it wasn't coming after him that passage. Well, as we pointed out, those that John made that promise to received what John promised. And Acts 1 and Acts 10 points out that they did. And, and we'd be happy for uh, uh, anyone to point out any other people that received what John promised according to the Bible. You see, John made the promise, and, and Christ himself in Acts 1, and Peter in Acts 10 said this is what the promise meant. And uh, in the face of divine uh, interpretation of these matters, I certainly would not be willing to take a, a, just a man's idea on the thing. Well, uh, Peter talking about Cornelius said, uh, why not baptize him because they received the same thing that they did at first? Uh, that's right, and, and that's one of the points that we want to make in regard to Acts 10. Peter said that the Holy Ghost fell on them as it did on us at the beginning. Yeah. And Peter had to go all the way back to the beginning to find a comparison. He, he didn't talk about the way it fell on those of you here that were baptized in water, some of the rest of them did. But he said that's what happened to us at the beginning, yeah. you see. And he also pointed out this was what John had promised. And so we accept that because the Bible says it. He meant that what happened to them at the beginning was special baptism. Uh, that's right. That's right. And Cornelius had this uh, event occur in his life because God wanted to prove that the Gentiles had the same access to the gospel the Jews did. And that's what Peter recounted the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. He said that they had learned that. And he, wanted, he also wanted to prove it took the same baptism put them in the body as he did. Well, now, I'd like you to give me the statement that makes that clear. You see, I can give you one that'll make that other clear in the Bible. And this is where our problems come, when you guess like that and don't find a passage for it. Well, he said that the one spirit was all baptized into one. Well, I, I know, but let's, 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 let's go. Jews or Gentiles. Uh, but let's go back to your statement there that you made, uh, that uh, Cornelius was also baptized because 
uh, he wanted to have this spirit baptism to get into the body like Peter did. And that's not said in that incident, is it? You don't find it with relationship to the household of Cornelius. You see, it's, it's just not in there. Oh, they, you mean pressure baptism? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the same uh, type of proof that we can find to say that the spirit baptism was given to Cornelius to indicate the Gentiles would receive the gospel. And we can read that. But we can't read that spirit baptism was given to Cornelius to put him into the body. You see? Now, you, you just have to assume that. No, you can't, you can't find it in the same That's right. And, and, and that's the thing that we're depending on. This is what the Word of God says about it. Yes. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of truth in the Bible that's circumstantial. Yes. Well, we'd be glad to take that kind of proof on this, if you could find it in the Bible. any comparison about the Holy Spirit baptism in regard to Cornelius traces it back to the beginning and we can read in Acts 1 why the apostles got it. And we know it wasn't to save them and Cornelius got the same thing that Peter said they got in the beginning and he said the reason for it and I just have to accept what he said about it. You see, P uh, Peter was the one that told us that. Okay. All right, thank you. Uh, we have another question this morning on Bible 4. Bible 4. Uh, this gentleman trying to uh, connect the baptism of Cornelius in his household with the uh, baptism that the uh, disciples received on the day of Pentecost, if he would read uh, the 10th or the 47th verse of the 10th chapter of Acts, he would find that the statement being made, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So we see that even though they did receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, they still had to have the baptism of water, you see. All right, that, that's uh, certainly true. I, I don't know that uh, this was his problem. It seems to me like that, uh, he would recognize the fact they were baptized in water, but that didn't do anything for them. In other words, he's saying that the Spirit was the thing to put him into the body. Mm -hmm. Well, I just wonder what he's going to do with Ephesians 4 and 4, where Paul says there is one baptism. Well, perhaps he'll tell us about it. Dad, I don't know. Uh, I, I, we would have to recognize the fact that at least in a very vital sense there's only one. And uh, I would agree with you that the oneness of the baptism there indicates the fact there's not but one man. But uh, uh, we just have to have some more light on that to deal with it, I think, from him, his standpoint. Okay, I hope he comes through with an understanding of it. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, we realize that this is a perplexing question. Uh, we're not trying to minimize the importance of it, nor to even... Uh, a stifled discussion on it. But we do insist, and I, I think you can see how that when we insist upon this, that it does have the effect of, of cutting down on discussion simply because when people confine themselves to what the Bible says about it, they are in difficulty with regard to ideas that cannot be spoken of concerning Scripture. And we recognize the fact that uh, there is a, an ambiguity or a, a, an obscurity about the statement made in 1 Corinthians 12. We simply ask for the same degree of understanding and the same degree of consideration with regard to this as you would apply to any other scriptural teaching that is mentioned in many passages. And we point out that you cannot bring God up against himself. There's just no way that you would have any right to do this. And the effect of saying that the baptism of 1 Corinthians 12 is a different baptism than Acts 2.38 uh, brings about the uh, claim that God is not uh, consistent with himself. That's just all in the world you can say about it. 
And one of the real problems involved in this uh, offering and this advancing of the fact that Holy Spirit baptism saves and Holy Spirit baptism uh, puts one into the body, and by this I mean baptism into the Spirit as an element, uh, is a, a fact of conflicting between Acts 2.38, which everyone recognizes water baptism, and which the Bible said is for the remission of sins, and which the Bible reveals on the condition of which people are entered in, uh, ushered into the church that God adds into the body. Uh, and to say, now, that's uh, a different baptism in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And this is where our problem is. And we simply want to accept what the Bible says. And we, we're not trying to be difficult or hard to get along with. It's true in the case of Cornelius that Cornelius experienced the baptism of water and that Cornelius experienced that baptism in the Spirit. It's also true that the baptism in the Spirit in the house of Cornelius is identified with the baptism of the Spirit uh, that fell on the apostles in Acts of the uh, second chapter. And the reason for it is the same. Now, in the face of these scriptural statements, I just find it difficult uh, to accept any man's view that uh, something is contrary to that. I'm dependent upon, and we're committed to the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, that God reveals to us the whole truth, that there's nothing in the world we need to know about our salvation that's not found in the Bible. And since this is what the Bible says about it, uh, then we can uh, readily reject all the ideas of men. We intend to do so. And we would hope that we might be able to study more about this thing in regard to what the Bible says about it. And uh, again, I say we understand that the problem is a perplexing problem, especially in view of the fact that there have been teachings that have been offered to the world by men uh, with relation to the idea that Holy Spirit baptism is still being experienced. Uh, many of those who teach it do not even accept it today as being the same thing it was then. Holy Spirit baptism back then enabled men to speak in tongues. It enabled men to uh, be inspired. It enabled men to uh, reveal truth. It enabled men to work miracles. Now, I know of a great many people who will contend that people are still being baptized with the Holy Spirit, but who will reject the idea that these things accompany that. Uh, and so we just have a big confusion over it, and the thing that I would appeal to all of you to do is just to go back to the Bible, read in the Bible, as John said in Matthew 3, that this was going to take place, read in the Bible, and actually the first chapter where Christ pointed out to the apostles they were the ones specifically that he had in mind when he had John make this promise. Read in the Bible how they received this. Read in the Bible what they received it for. Read in the Bible in Acts of the 10th chapter how the household of Cornelius received it and what they received it for. And then read in the Bible what it takes to be a Christian. Read in the Bible how one becomes uh, acceptable to God. Read in the Bible how one's sins are forgiven. Read in the Bible how one gets into the body. Read in the Bible how many baptisms there are now. And then we'll be able to come to some conclusion, scripturally speaking, that will be consistent with God's will and be in order for us to do and to accept before we can ever be acceptable unto God. Now, we appeal to you on that uh, basis, and we always have. Uh, let's just study the Bible together, and let's be willing to accept all that it says and everything that it says and nothing else uh, besides what the Bible says. And you'll find out that all these denominations we've been talking about will be erased. Every divisive teaching upon the part of man, every practice that uh, contradicts another practice will be eliminated. And we'll be able to be together in the will of God, and that's the, exactly what we hope to be able to uh, bring forth on the program and what we'd like to excite your interest in and encourage you to share with us in as we go through our studies and as we try to worship and to please God every day. Uh, we want to remind you our phone number here is 2538307 or 2538308. We'd be happy to have anyone in this city call us and discuss with us these matters. Surely uh, some of these preachers who have been so outspoken and trying to advocate this idea would have some more material to offer and be able to suggest some other things that ought to be considered and studied along this line. We cannot really believe that their position is so shallow in their own mind that they'd have no comeback and no offering of discussion 
And yet such seems to be the case, that we, uh, you find people who are so energetic in advocating these matters when they have no opposition, when they're not confronted with those who would study with them the Bible and challenge their position and uh, consider what the Bible actually says about it. Uh, they'll be outspoken and they'll be very fervent and they'll just uh, say this must be right. Uh, everyone must believe it. And then they'll not be willing to, uh, as the old-time uh, preachers and as the preachers of the Bible did, to contend for the faith and to advocate the truth and to show by the word of God that these things must be so. But you have an open invitation on our program. We are, that's one of the things that we uh, consider to be unique in this area. That's one of the things that we believe is, is beneficial to the program. It's beneficial to those who listen. It's one of the things that is going to help us get close to God is to, is to be willing to talk together about it and to study it. And we're hoping that one of these days that those who have put themselves in the position of teachers and claim responsibility for the guidance of the souls of men will have the same responsibility toward the Word of God and, and realize that the only way we can guide one another is to guide each other to the Bible, to bring us to the Word of God, uh, not just a part of it, not just an occasional statement we can read out of it, but to take all of it and to consider everything that is said. And I think you can detect as we go through at least an honest effort on our part not to just consider one passage but to demand that we take a passage in its context to demand that we apply it not only in the light of what it says but in the light of other passages and recognize all the Spirit teaches on any subject before we make a conclusion with regard to matters of that sort. Uh, this is our position on the church. Uh, our questioner began by raising the uh, issue as to how one became part of the church and we pointed out in Galatians 3 how this was done. Uh, we need to consider not only that, and this will uh, have a very special part in our studies later on in our series as we discuss these various things, but as we said, we need, need even to find out the time of the beginning of the church. And if the church that we're a part of did not begin when the New Testament church began, then we have to eliminate that from our thinking. We have to just honestly believe and recognize the fact that this cannot be the New Testament church. A characteristic of the New Testament church would evidently be that it began at the time the New Testament church began, and if it began at another time, then it could not be that one. We've observed that there are some who contend that the church began back in the days uh, of the Jews, that it began uh, that long time before the gospel was advocated and Christ was crowned king, the church came into existence, and it's been existing ever since the time of Abraham. And we pointed out that that could not be true because Abraham was uh, promised by God that these things would occur. but. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 that these things did not occur until the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and that seed was Christ. And so it could not have been in the days of Abraham. We pointed out it could not have been in the days of Moses because Moses uh, pointed out that a new covenant would occur, not a or that Jeremiah did in regard to the law of Moses, uh, not a covenant like the law that uh, Moses gave, but a covenant that was to be a new covenant entirely. And we read from Hebrews the 8th chapter to see that this covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, it could not have been in the days of John the Baptist because John the Baptist came not preaching that the kingdom is here, but preaching that it draweth nigh, that it is near at hand. And we made the observation that Christ taught concerning John that not a, that although one born of woman was not greater than John, no one, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven was greater than he, and that was because that John wasn't in the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't allowed to enjoy membership therein, even though he came to announce it. And even though it was drawing nigh during the ministry of John, Jesus Christ himself made that same statement, that the kingdom of heaven draweth nigh. We made the observation, and this is really where we left off last week in our study, uh, that it could not have happened before the death of Christ simply because it involved a will or a testament. And the will or testament, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, did not become effective, was not ratified, and was not enforced until the testator, or the one who gave the will, 
passed away, in keeping with all we understand and know about covenants, that would evidently be true, and the Bible affirms the fact that it's true, in regard to the covenant of Christ, the will of Christ, the testament of Christ, that the Bible said was made effective after uh, Christ himself died. Not only is that true, but we want to make the observation this morning uh, that it could not have been before the resurrection of Christ. We need to accept the fact that this is true, that before there could have been uh, the church of the Lord established, it must have been evidently true that Christ both died and was resurrected. Now, one of the reasons why we make that assertion can be found in Matthew the 16th chapter and verse 18. You remember here that the Lord made the statement based upon the confession or upon the affirmation that was made by Peter. He said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And if we go back and recognize the rock, then we'll have a pretty clear concept of the time at which these things must occur, at least some, uh, the, some of the things that must occur before the coming of the church into existence. The question was raised in the 13th verse of Matthew 16 by the Lord, Whom do men say that I am? Uh, various answers were given by the apostles as having been offered by men. And then he said in verse 15, Whom do ye say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're told in verse 17 that Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And so the point we're making is here that Christ made the promise, Upon this rock I will build my church. And the rock that is the point of discussion, the issue that had been raised by the Lord and answered by Peter, was the fact of the divine sonship of the Lord. Christ said, Upon this fact, upon the establishing of my uh, claim as the Son of God, I will build my church. It's wise to observe, I think, even here, that the church had not yet come into existence because Christ affirmed, I will build my church. Now, the time will at least be partially settled by recognizing the conditions. And Christ said, Upon this rock I will build my church. In other words, I will build it upon the fact that I am the Son of God. And so if we read concerning this, if we turn over to the book of Romans, and in verse 1 we'll find out when that was actually set forth in its fullest sense, when men might be able to see that such was true. We read in Romans chapter 1, as Paul writes to the uh, servants at Rome, he said, Concerning his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And so we recognize the fact then that Christ's sonship was established. It was made to be true and indicated to be right by the fact of his resurrection. Now Jesus said, Upon this rock that is my sonship, upon my claim to be related to God in this way, I will build my church. Paul says that the fact of Christ's resurrection was the thing that established his claim that he was the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When Christ was resurrected, this indicated that all the things that he had said about himself, all the promises that he had made, all the things that involved his work on earth could be testified to be true without doubt by the fact of the miracle that he was raised from the dead in keeping with his own uh, prediction, in keeping with the power of God, and certainly in view of what he had planned for, what he had promised with regard to the church. And so the church could not have come into existence before the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And if you remember the church that claims to have started during the days of John the Baptist, as, for example, the Baptist church does, then you just have to face up to the fact that it's not the New Testament church, because the New Testament church could not have begun before the resurrection of Christ from the dead. 
Though we make those statements, and possibly there will be comments offered for us, uh, for us next week on that, our time is up for now. I want you to continue to study your Bibles and ask your Bible questions on Bible Forum, and we hope to see you again next Lord's Day. But till then, we bid you a very pleasant good day. You've just heard Bible Forum, sponsored by the Church of Christ on Hope Street behind WWNR and the direction of Audrey Ballou.